This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to 1969. I'm Justin Cox, and with me is Ryan Page. How's it going, Ryan? People, people, we're in 1969. You need to cool it. <laughs> uh, you better speak a little more emphatically or someone's going to get shanked. Cool it, people. <laughs> so what do we got in 1969, including that greatest hit that you're playing? So we have uh, Abbey Road was released by the Beatles in 1969, and the Rolling Stones put out Let It Bleed. And I am, of course, referring to the Rolling Stones live performance at Altamont that was perfectly uh, captured in the documentary Gimme Shelter, which actually I think came out in 1970, but um, we'll still be talking about Altamont. And then 1969 was also the year of the Manson murders, famously inspired by Helter Skelter. So this this uh, year, I'll be arguing for the Beatles and you will be taking Let It Bleed. Um, I guess I will kick things off by saying Abbey Road is just awesome. Um, you know, it's it's got a bunch of hits on the first side of the album. And then the second side is almost completely uh, a medley of songs. Lennon and McCartney gladly put it up against any album from anyone. What do you have to say for that Rolling Stones, man? Well, like I'll, I'll take, (laughs) I love let it bleed much more than I, how can I put this? I I think that this is like clearly the best sort of overall year of both of these bands together in the whole thing from the beginning, all the way through the end of it like everything we said about the white album last last week and then and then beggar's banquet it's like there's there's high points and low points all over it these two albums are excellent and like abbey road is so much more cohesive and and kind of complete than the white album is so i'm not going to argue against that um but i will say let it bleed is equally badass do you think the stones just like they did beggar's banquet and then they were kind of like let's just run this back because 
Let It Bleed feels like a very similar structure to Beggar's Banquet in the same way we talked about last year where you have two um, just kick-ass songs to kick at to to kick off this each side give me shelter and then midnight rambler on side two um and then you get the bonus you can't always get what you want at the at the end of side two did, did it feel similar in structure to you very much they, they both also have the track two that's like this kind of slow clipping like acoustic bluesy song no expectations and then uh um, love in vain it's yeah no they very much and they both have these kind of like slightly sepia kind of dusty tones to the record covers and everything um you know what thought i had they did basically what whitney last week our guest last week said the beatles should do with the white album is like instead of this big pile of like good stuff and shit the white album could be three albums and you can just burn one of them yeah and <laughs> the, the, the rolling stones basically made two albums mm-hmm. that feel like they're they're of the same moment, you know, I've all, you, it's really impossible not to associate those two albums, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, I don't know what sort of is consensus thought to be the better of those two albums, but I'm a, I'm a let it bleed boy. That's interesting. I think I would probably lean more towards beggars banquet just because I mean, if, if for no other reason, then I like sympathy for the devil more than give me shelter. Your, your love of let it bleed or like the general persons it some of it is going to depend on how much you love gimme shelter and for whatever reason that's not my favorite of like the rolling stones hit songs i will fully agree that sympathy for the devil is is the the better of those two songs i think i think gimme shelter it's a little bit unfair because it is a super cool song but it's it's such a cliche like war movie song and and yeah it's been it's been pumped into us like similar similar to like credence's fortunate son it's like you're you're basically feel like you're watching fucking forrest gump or something i definitely think that's part of the the issue with that song is i've just heard it so many times and even something like fortunate son that's just like a quick two and a half minute jammer and Gimme Shelter is just a little bit longer and and a little bit less kind of catchy of a song. And so I think maybe that's part of it. But like the way I feel about it is that like, I mean, Sympathy for the Devil stands on its own. It might be the the best song in all of those two albums together and probably one of the best Rolling Stone songs or rock and roll songs ever, like you said last last week. But from that point on, like what let it bleed does i just love in vain so cover of a robert johnson song that's just like this thing just super slowly clips along so deliberately and so the the kind of noodling guitars you hear keith doing when the train coming to station I, i'm obsessed with that song yeah i really I really love Mick's singing on this album. I, I really love when he gets into that sort of country cowboy crooner mode. And, you know, we we didn't mention this up top, but Honky Tonk Women came out this year as well as a single, which is fantastic song, fantastic single. I really like it. And I really like Country Honk. And I would say that when I doing chores around the house and I am singing that song, I tend to sing the country honk version because it's more fun to kind of croon it like that. Just can't see 
I love the country honk version the most, but I think that's a little bit of me being like, I'm a real Rolling Stones head. <laughs> let it bleed. Let it bleeds my album. You guys can take your version that's on 40 licks or whatever. So, because I love both of them, that's just me probably being like a little pretentious or something. Well, and Let It Bleed has that similar sort of vocal styling. We all need. Well, we all I mean, it's just so fun to just slip into that. If you think about it, it is actually insane that Mick Jagger can so perfectly play like Southern country American. Like he's a British dude from London. How, how, how does he do this? So in a way that's not like, is that British guy putting on like a Western accent or something? It just totally works for him. I think it's a perfect example of what all musicians and people should take to heart. If you filter your influences or what you like through yourself authentically, it's going to come out as something else and it's going to feel original. Now, I'm not, I don't want to encourage people. I'm just telling you, you're not Mick Jagger, but it does seem like somewhere between 1966 and 1968, he figured something out about his vocal styling. I mean, he's always, we talked on the first episode about how Mick felt close to fully realized even on those early EPs and albums, but th there's something about the freedom that he's giving himself to explore these different directions that it's just so fun to listen to. Yeah, but it's totally true. Like if I, but if I like wrote a song this afternoon and texted it over to you in like a voice memo and I was singing in a British accent, <laughs> you'd be like, the hell out of here, dude. What are you doing? I, d I sometimes do that actually unconsciously, <laughs> especially if you, if, especially if you're in the mode of writing punk songs, it's real easy to yeah. put a yeah. little, little British twang on top. Um, I feel, I feel like this week we could, uh, like White Album was such a behemoth, you know? Like I yeah. feel like we can kind of ping pong back into Abbey Road and and like talk about them all together. Cause I don't want to like, Abbey Road is amazing. Like uh, it is, I, I like though, we've been talking the Beatles so much, especially at the beginning of the podcast. And then the, the Stones have been not an afterthought, but just, you know, I have more to say about Let It Bleed almost than Abbey Road. But the, I, I want to make one of my uh, grand proclamations um, that I have to make at least once a podcast. Um, you can't always get what you want. Best final song of any of these albums for either band to date? Agree or disagree? Best? I think I could say best can be different than my favorite, um, but it's a perfect ending song. That that thing you said earlier about how like, how are the Rolling Stones going to compete with Hey Jude at, as this thing that you could walk into a bar and do the na-na-nas with pretty much anyone in the world you can't always get you what you want accomplishes that you could i mean that's an iconic that's are you thinking a day in the life is that your as uh yeah I've, a day in the life is a a more interesting song than you can't always get what you want but sitting and ringing out the simple strummed chords of you can't always get what you want and singing them is it's an amazing way to end an album um I, but it, but it's to me a day in the life or I'd have to think more. It, it's a cooler song. I just think if you go back through all these albums we've talked about, it's maybe surprising how often the final song on there is just some cast off like afterthought. And, and it makes sense because people that, that are just the way you do things, like get all the best songs up front. And I feel like having that song last on this album marks some kind of, of shift 
because a day in the life is a little bit different since that's sort of like wrapping up this concept of Sgt. Peppers, but this is definitely not a concept album. They just put, you know, the first or second best song at the end of side two. Yeah. Well, and it also does like it to echo how similar this album is to um, beggars banquet or how of a piece it feels just like Whitney said last week, like you're, you're in the bar, you're all together, you're hanging your arms around your friends, you're holding up a glass. Like that's in the same way that Beggar's Banquet ends that way. So does this album. It feels that way. So my other grand proclamation um, is that the vocal perform mixed vocal performance on You Can't Always Get What You Want might be my favorite vocal production, performance, everything about it, I think is just all time great. And in fact, I was listening to it the other day and I was listening to it on a service where I didn't have the ability to rewind. I could only restart the song and it got to the part where Mick was coming in and I got distracted or something happened. I had to take my headphones off and I missed it. And I, I just restarted the song and listened to the entire choral part again, just, just to get Mick's voice coming in on the headphones because it is so sublime. At the reception A glass of wine In a hand Yeah, it's really good I, I can remember hearing it as a kid And thinking like You can put yourself in line At the at the Chelsea drugstore Like j- just being eternally interested in it And he's, it's, he's narrating it perfectly Apparently that the group the choir that did the singing part at the beginning distanced themselves from it because they didn't like that it was drug associated you can't always get what you want which i find hilarious because i'm sure this is the most successful famous thing they ever did you actually sent a uh, live video of rolling stones playing um honky tonk woman and at the beginning of it i don't i don't know why or what context it's in but like Mick Jagger says the thing about the Beatles and like, oh, I don't know, they're more songwriters. And that's a recurring theme in this, in this podcast is like the, the song craft, like meticulous song crafters, um, melody makers, everything like that typically is the Beatles. The Rolling Stones have this more energy thing, but the Rolling Stones also come with things like Ruby Tuesday and, and satisfaction and these like, like real, like, catchy catchy pop songs you could sing along with i guess ruby tuesday more than um satisfaction but the this album to me is like some of my favorite rolling stones lyrics some of my favorite mick jagger lyrics Mm -hmm. so and to the point of being like i know when you're like thinking of your favorite lyrics are you thinking of rape comma murder it's gnarly sound it's a it's a gnarly set of lyrics like on let it bleed she said, my breasts, they will always be open. Baby, you can rest your weary head right on me. And there will always be a space in my parking lot when you need a little Coke and sympathy. I was dreaming of a steel guitar engagement when you when you drunk my health in scented jasmine tea, but you knifed me in a dirty, filthy basement with that jaded, faded, junky nurse of what pleasant company. That's cool. That's great. You know, and I think that brings up a really important dichotomy between these albums or how I feel about these albums. It's hard to you know be here removed in time 50 years from these albums but the the let it bleed is definitely interacting or commenting on or relating the experience of the vietnam war happening and the sort of social unrest that is going on 
in England, in America, Abbey Road feels like it has totally absent from that. Like it feels like often a daydream, la la land. And, you know, I'm sure for some people, maybe that's to Abbey Road's credit and and that's what they're wanting and signing up for. But to me, I'm I'm it's hard for me to imagine to be such a major artist during living in that time period. And especially when the Rolling Stones put out something like this to just be so sort of removed from the mood and moment of the day. If 1969 is like the dream dying and and like the everything, all the hope of the summer of love and everything kind of washing away into what will become the 70s, Let It Bleed feels like it's pulled from that and Abbey Road does feel like an escape from it. Like a, yeah. Definitely. Um, so what are, you, what are your favorite songs on Abbey Road? Because I feel like there, there could be a, a lot of, not a lot of overlap necessarily. Like some two people could listen to this album and have completely different songs that they're drawn to. My favorite is the the Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, came in through the bathroom window, one, two, three, punch. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Like, always, always loved it. My favorite is definitely Octopus's Garden. It can't be true. <laughs> <laughs> it cannot be true. <laughs> no, that song is terrible. I love Come Together. I That to me is the best song it's just so solid. I never get tired of it. Lennon's performance, Paul McCartney's bass playing. Ringo, Ringo kicks ass on the drums on that one too. There's like, there's like some video of uh, a bunch of like famous drummers like sitting at a drum set in a white room and like playing like like basically like bowing to Ringo on everything he does on that song and kind of mm-hmm. showing you all those subtle stuff. And what's cool about that is like. I grew up, I mean, I grew up just sort of generally not really thinking much about Ringo and, and probably even passively laughing at Ringo. And then that like reframed my mind. And then now as we've gone through this and as I, any, since I've listened to the Beatles after that, you get to hear all the, like Ringo's kicking ass on a lot of this stuff. Oh, for sure. And I feel like, you can tell he's having a lot more fun on this album. And I would say I barely noticed Ringo at all on the white album, which is just a shame. And I think it goes to show what was happening during that recording session. They definitely feel much more like a full band again, even though this is their last release. This is their last chronological album. Uh, for those that don't know, Let It uh, Let It Be will come out in 1970, but it, the sessions for that were actually recorded before this. So this is the last time the Beatles were were working together. And something funny that I read that Ringo said, Ringo Cop 2 was basically like, yeah, on Abbey Road, I, re- I went really Tom crazy. And there's too much Toms on the album, which I, I don't know if I would have ever thought that while listening to it. But after hearing him say that, it's like, oh, there is a lot of Toms on here. It works for me. But I could see why a drummer might be like, I went, I went too far. That's funny. Like even the beginning of something is just like him, like doing a Tom, a Tom fill. Well, while we're, while we're talking Ringo and sort of non John Paul members, uh, this is like, this is a, 
I think George Harrison's worst songs are on the White Album. George, that like some of those George Harrison songs on the White Album. I mean, we we roasted Savory Truffle and Pizza's <laughs> pretty good. This this album is his best showing, I think. Like it, I, it didn't occur to me that like uh, when we talked about "Here Comes the Sun" being the most streamed song of the Beatles on on uh, Spotify, which is says something about what like current listeners think is the most I don't know, popular Beatles song or most important Beatles song in a way is a Harrison song. The idea that a mm. Harrison song is the top streamed Beatles song. That's, I would never guess that. And I think something's very good too. I definitely agree that this is probably his best showing. Um, I feel like something in here comes the sun are basically unassailable. Something is just a vibe. Um, and here comes the sun is clearly, I'm not going to that song for its lyrics. Yeah. But both of those are great vocal performances by George Harrison. And he really, he just never, he's never felt more confident than he does on this album. And then that's going to launch himself into his solo career where he's obviously full of um, self-confidence and and knowing exactly what he's doing. So that's my favorite thing about these Harrison tunes is that he just feels like he knows exactly what he wants to do and he's doing it. One of the things I was reading about Abbey Road is apparently John was mad that he um John was mad at the production of Oh Darling and he felt like he should have sang that song because it's more his vocal style and after thinking about that I totally agree. I don't like Oh Darling and I feel like if John was singing that song it would be way better. Yeah, John John is kind of a master at the like slightly redlining screaming melodically letting it out and that's what Oh Darling is. Yeah, and Paul Paul is a great lead singer, but he, I don't know that he's as good. It's kind of the same thing as like Helter Skelter where like, even when he's screaming, it feels controlled. It does. It, it doesn't feel like, you know, John, John Lennon going back to twist and shout and that song being recorded after like a 12 hour day of, of recording in the studio and John just shredding his vocals singing that. And I don't know that Paul could ever do something like that. Exactly. I think he can, but it's not. I mean, John's the master at it. And, and Oh Darling, I, I I feel that. Like, Oh Darling is, a. I think it is a good song, but it's like, a, it, it would be better served by being a little bit crazier. You know, like, it, it's it's a catchy little thing to sing along to, but if you, it's otherwise a little bit forgettable. Yeah, and I also just coming right on the heels of Maxwell Silverhammer, which again, they both have that, Paul just John John is always referring to Paul's these songs that I kind of call like Paul's farty bass lines as granny music and I, looking at the album both Maxwell Silverhammer and Oh Darling are exactly three minutes and 27 seconds in length which I find kind of odd but you already get a kind of mid to low tempo Maxwell Silverhammer and then right after that Oh Darling which is not, I mean, not a totally similar song, but you know, you could maybe, maybe put Octopus's Garden between those two, or actually, better yet, maybe take Octopus's Garden off this album. <laughs> I think Octopus's Garden is, I, I don't think you can go from Maxwell Silverhammer to Octopus's Garden. To me, those are both, you, you're venturing way too close into like kid song territory. <laughs> Which is ironic since Maxwell Silverhammer is about a serial killer. Amazing. Yeah. Maxwell there's a part do you, did you hear the part like about a minute or so into maxwell silver hammer where you can hear paul mccartney like laugh on his vocal 
track. Mm-hmm. Writing 50 times, I must not be. It's cool. I love that. I love when you can kind of hear a person's face, like smile or like break a little. And don't know why he's laughing about serial killing, but um, my thing, my Abbey Road, like, is to me a way, it's a, a more full, perfect package than both of the two albums that precede it, in my opinion, White Album and um, Sgt. Pepper's. The, the things, how do you feel about, how do you feel about the songs like Sun King and um, some of these, like, I, I just don't need this little, like, I think they're serving the purpose of being like interludes to kind of like. You think it because? Yeah, because and Sun King, it's like, I think they're serving the purpose of like carrying you through like the narrative arc of the the album, but I don't, I don't need them. I don't, I could do without them. I I think this album is kind of weird in that, you know, I just put on side two of this album and just listen to it all the way through and just like, let it wash over me. But any individual one of these songs or parts in the melody, if you took them out, I'd be like, that's fine. Like, I don't love any of them. I don't, I, I, none of them really mean anything to me, which I, I'm, I'd like to hear your take on this and you don't have to have an answer to this, but to you, what does in the end, the love you make is equal to the love you take. What does that mean? This is a recurring thing. I, I think with the Beatles, I don't care. I don't know, but I don't care. I think I, like I go to it with Bob Dylan and Jackson Brown to like, I, this is going to mean a thing to me. I don't know what it is about the Beatles, but I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, if I'm going to scrutinize that, am I going to scrutinize mean Mr. Mustard and polythene Pam? I just not. But the mean Mr. There's not words from mean Mr. Mustard that are printed on like t-shirts and bumper stickers. And that was yeah. something that people really used to kind of sum up the Beatles or, you know, it, it is, is some kind of tagline that people really held onto and was like, yes. And to me, I just, it's one of those things that sounds good. It sounds deep. And then you're like, well, what does that mean? And if you think about it for longer than 30 seconds, you're like, this doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I don't think I can't get meaning from it. I, I think it's like, uh, yeah, the kind of thing you put on a bumper sticker. I, I do think besides like the little draggy parts on because and sun King, which are, they're fine, but not my favorite that side two of that album, just like one, two, three, go. And then just all these songs connecting to each other really, really like, I, I I've I've loved I've always loved that like and then a guy a musician you and I both like Jeff Rosenstock put out this album called Worry like three or four years ago and side two of that album does the same thing it's a bunch of minute long songs like seven of them that just kind of chain together and it's just a cool like you've had these hits you've kind of like experienced the first part of the album which is sort of more conventional and then it's like flip it over and you're just off to the races all the way until the album ends and with the Beatles, like the end feels like a setting aside what, what the meaning of those lyrics for people, uh-huh. it feels like a you're ending it. And then you get the right. little hidden, you get the little hidden her majesty. And I love that too. This I do feel like, like it's an appropriate final track. And it, it is, it feels like they should have done this with the white album. It feels like if they had just spent a little bit more time and like been less at each other's throats and in, had the desire to or whatever they could have made something that coalesced as well as this does, because these are just a bunch of random songs. You know, this is just a bunch of song fragments that John and Paul had sitting around that they thoughtfully put together into like a perfect flowing 
medley. Why couldn't you have done that with the White Album? Why couldn't you have put more thought into, it makes me want to look backwards a little bit and be like, see, of course you guys can do this. We all know you can do this. This is why the White Album is so frustrating. And so, while I don't know that any, I would definitely, I actually kind of really hate because that's the one, I I would just take that Take that out completely and then just give me Here Comes the Sun into the medley and I'd be happy. I, I agree. I, it's hard for me. The way I feel about Because is like, I actually can't comprehend a person who would say, I really like Because. What? <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't know what. Because and why? I'm not, I'm not offended by it, but yeah. Why? Because why? Speaking of like meaninglessness, the, the Spanish words on Sun King, yeah. I, I looked up the lyrics to that because I was like, what? They're, they are also totally meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> Translated like, they are? Well, I mean, they all are real words. And I think maybe they form like coherent thoughts, but they they were just like nice sounding Spanish words that Paul and John picked out and sort of like threw together. And they don't, there's, there's no like deeper meaning there. It's not, it's not letting you know that Paul is dead. We have Eric Nash, who hosts the Almost Famous Minute and the Feels Like Weezer podcast, both of which are on Pantheon. Um, who who do you got in this year? It's Beatles for me all the way. I mean, it's I would say this would be my number one album of all time. That'll do uh, from, it then. from any band from I'm any glad, era. <laughs> I'm glad that you have the chance to talk about it on this. Then, so what is it about Abbey Road that is a favorite of yours on that level, and also your your favorite thing the Beatles have done? So, so there's just this, this, this amazing overall production techniques that I think by this point, they were actually kind of, you know, coming, coming to almost uneasiness between them. I mean, I think especially Paul uh, with, with George Martin, they were so much more involved in the production um, over the years. And, the, and it culminated, I think it really culminated in this album. So Ryan sent me the link to the, like, Peter Jackson's making this documentary. Um, yeah. Did you see the, the little, like, kind of trailer type thing for that yet? Uh, yeah, I know I, I, I did watch, like, yeah, just like a couple weeks or so ago. I think maybe a, a little something came out and, and I caught it on YouTube. Those, those sessions are, they. I think that they're Abbey Road and Let It Be. Yeah, kind stuff, of both, right? you know. And, and, and I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, Let It Be definitely is in the middling, I think, group of, I mean, while, while, you know, I have my the Beatles albums I, I I like the least. They're still a ton better than <laughs> I, I love them more than you know most other bands. Um, yeah, best stuff. Um, I mean, what's crazy as you say that, like the next year, so '69 we get Abbey Road, and then the next year, it's you don't just to show where their heads are creatively. That you don't only get Let It Be, you get a Paul McCartney solo album, you get All Things Must Pass, a double album by George, Lennon, uh, Plastic Ono Band, and then two Ringo albums. Then in the same year as Let It Be. So like to say that they weren't uh, like setting out on other pastures would be (laughs) an understatement. I mean, they had that. Yeah, that's that's an amazing point. Yeah, yeah. And your idea of doing 64 to 74 is pretty, pretty interesting. To, yeah. to go in and, and, and look at uh, the Beatles solo work and, and, and comparing that to <laughs> the Stones who are sticking together. <laughs> yeah, I, par- I partly see that as just like a fun excuse to explore some of those Beatles solo albums that I don't know yeah. and some of the ones that I do know mm-hmm. and love. But also like the first episodes of this podcast are so unfair to the Rolling Stones because the Beatles mm-hmm. are coming out hot and the Rolling Stones are just kind of like 
I mean, making cool music, but it ain't, it's not the same thing. And so oh, yeah. those are, those are, those are prime Rolling Stones years. So want to give them to them. Awesome. Well, Eric, that was fun. Yeah. Um, where can people find your, your podcasts and you in general? So, yeah. Like I said, I mean, we're a part of the same network Pantheon podcasts. Um, and uh, so it's almost famous minute and feels like Weezer. Well, I really appreciate it. Fun talking to you. Oh yeah. Thank you. I've got a feeling, a feeling. What it does on Midnight Rambler, like absolutely in the pocket with each other, like they're jamming and then it fades into that, like, um, kind of like it just creeps up and completely the, the original part of the song kind of stalls out and then it's like, boom. And then they're back into like a slow version of what you were hearing earlier with Midnight Rambler. That's like Rolling Stones on all cylinders. It's so good. Well, so a couple of thoughts on that. One is when I was listening to Midnight Rambler a lot, we, we just talked about how it seems like I mean, it's hard to say a band that's come into their own when they've had God knows how many number one hits to this point, you know, but I was thinking back to that earlier song. It's not easy. Remember, we were making fun of that and how it's such a stupid little like jammer. And this song is like very much in that same mold. And it's just like Mick and them figured something out uh, of like how to take that kind of in the pocket jam and make it really jam and, and make it something more than just, it's not easy. And we were, when you were talking earlier about, you know, Mick kind of saying, yeah, you know, the, the Beatles are, are better songwriter. I, I feel like the, I don't think the Beatles are necessarily better songwriters, but they focus on different things and, and reading and listening to the Beatles over the years, the thing that the Beatles are really great at, and they are were always seem to be so focused on is the idea of like the middle eighth, the bridge, and the all every Beatles song just about um, at least prior to some of these more experimental albums has some kind of very interesting middle eighth where the song changes and it's just perfect and they always always nailed that and the Rolling Stones are not that concerned with that. They are concerned with the riff that that whatever is the sort of inciting riff of the song, in a way that I think they're 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 better at that than the Beatles, and the Beatles are better at sort of that construction of like different parts of songs. And I feel like that's the difference. And people give the Beatles more credit because it can be harder to come up with something like a middle eighth or or a bridge that really sounds great and makes sense in a song. But I feel like it's just two different like focuses almost. Yeah. And, and would you say that like that what you're describing, you catch you catch vibes on this that they're gonna only get better at that by the time we get to like Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street's like the full flowering of like unchecked riffing. I just I I that's their greatest strength and weakness. And I feel like it's what ends up being kind of the Beatles downfall in these later albums is they get so bored with they're to the point where they're like, what if we just made this song not catchy or not nice to listen to? And, you know, at the end of the day, the music has to sound good. And for these four or five years, the Rolling Stones were totally content with just staying in that pocket, hitting those riffs hard and, and Keith Richards and like Charlie Watts are the kind of guys that, they don't need to mix it up necessarily. They're happy to just like stay in that one place, find it and and be like, cool, we're golden. Well, 
Now, later on in their career, it becomes really rote and kind of, um, you know, the riffs are less interesting and the songs are, are more just geared to getting on the radio or whatever. But I think that's a huge strength of the Rolling Stones. And that's part of why they were able to crank out so many just awesome wall to wall classics during this period is they're, they, they weren't going to mess with it just to mess with it. That, that Baker's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile Run is like them doing exactly what you want them to do and doing it even better than you could ask. It's so, it's. Do you know the urban legend about the song Gimme Shelter in the recording? I don't. There is an urban legend that the the woman who who sang on that song, Mary Clayton, Mary Clayton is the woman who's singing on that song. The the uh, The urban legend is that she was pregnant when she came into the studio to do that performance. She was just like a, a session musician singer who they just brought in for this one performance and that the the legend is that she sang so hard on gimme shelter that she um she caused herself to miscarry oh my god i thought you were gonna say she went into labor no jesus wow um in the beatles universe she sings so hard that she goes into labor and has a very happy baby in the rolling stones universe you miscarry that is really laying it all out um, on the, on the record, and so I think that's part of why that's hard. Song is hard to listen to sometimes. It's gonna be hard for me to listen to next time I, listen, I hear it. <laughs> this is this is uh, speaking of like sad endings for people. This is also when it comes to an end for Brian Jones, right? That is right. I think he has like one or two tracks on this album, but. Um, yeah, he was dismissed by the band and said, you know, you're you're fired. And then he died a month later in a swimming pool. Dang. Yeah. So so long, Brian Jones. Um, we hardly knew ye. And yeah, it's it's pretty sad, despite his um clinical narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> Um, could you like all that, all this stuff we're talking about and where we can get to Altamont in a second is like the, all of it just sounds very bleak and dark. Like it, it, it does. And, and that is a time in history that is bleak. Um, yeah. could you say, could you say that the, like the Beatles, like you said, it feels very separate from that moment. Could you say that like things like come together and here come the sun and the Beatles thing is like manifesting something more positive. Like it is of that moment, but not in like a, Hey, look how shitty everything is, but in like a, Hey, let's make it less shitty. I I mean, yeah, I definitely think that's a perspective. That's, that's a valid perspective. And, and that's not one, it's not my preferred perspective, but I certainly wouldn't begrudge someone. Yeah. So, uh, couple of interesting for whatever reason i really love the production on let it bleed like it just sounds perfect to me let it bleed an amazing production of music and one of the things that i I was going to comment on the podcast was man charlie watts i really love his drumming on you can't always get what you want uh but that's not charlie watts it is i read this yeah jimmy jimmy miller who was the producer of the album um, plays the drums on you can't always get what you want because apparently Charlie Watts just could not handle 
that that beat for whatever reason i love the idea of of a a musician accomplished on that level being like oh, i just can't get this beat can't get this one down but if you try sometimes well, you might find you get what you need. Uh, uh, yeah and having the 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 stones to <laughs> the stones so to speak to be like yeah take a crack at it um also al cooper plays the organ on you can't always get what you want and al cooper is also the person who plays the organ on like a rolling stone cool damn that's a that's a hot organ part well the so this this is this is not a rolling stones uh story but i do love the story is that al cooper was just a session musician and he is not a pianist and during the like a rolling stone the highway 61 revisited sessions he there was a pianist that was hired to play on those who was not Al Cooper. And in between songs, while they were taking a break, Al Cooper was in the studio playing on the organ, just playing a simple little organ part to the song. And then Bob Dylan came back in the room and was like, do that again. And the producer tried to be like, Oh no, he's not a, he's not a pianist. Like he, he's not a, he, he can't play. And, he, and Bob Dylan was like, no, do that again. just totally replaced the person that was supposed to be playing playing the organ on that song and ended up being this guy Al Cooper who he was a multi-instrumentalist but was not known for playing the organ <laughs> and he ended up doing a whole bunch of stuff with with Bob Dylan in that in that capacity so I always thought that was a really interesting story that's an amazing story you think that you think that guy just did that by happenstance or do you think he was just savvy and smart and picked his moment to shoot his shot I think he was shooting a shot a little bit but I also yeah, who knows? You'd have to ask Al Cooper about that, but obviously it worked out for him all right. Um, you talk about like the production on Abbey Road. I think it's I, what I the way I feel about it. I think the production on Let It Bleed is amazing. You can hear like just you could hear everything, yes. every little like you could hear the guitar pick like coming off the strings and stuff. It just so feels so close to you. Abbey Road is way more tidy, a little. It, it might not have like the sort of like specific things to be interested in, like the way Sergeant Peppers or the White Album do, for for better or worse. But I think after those two years of the Beatles making those albums, this is, it, it, I want something like this. I want this album that they made. You know, like it has, it's a mix of hits and a mix of kind of mid level like pretty good songs, and then this run, this medley at the end. It's interesting without being like um, overly pretentious and and trying to do something mm. super weird oh, I, it's not I, drawing I attention to the production in a good yeah. way yeah I'll, i i i like it i i honestly i swear i said this at the beginning but like if you go back early in in the early episodes of this podcast you come to realize like we're doing a podcast about loving the beatles and rolling stones and then basically finding things to say <laughs> that are bad nit, every single year you know yes yeah but that's that's a lot of what's fun there's to me way whereas last week is probably the most to nitpick on anything until maybe some later stuff um because of the white album it's real hard to nitpick this one it's like a little song here and there these these are both really yeah classic yeah i agree and you put them on from start to finish and you're going to be happy um I, I just don't know why the the production of let it bleed just really stood out to me and just sounded great and I, there's just so much space there in a great way where everything is really you can hear every single part and 
like when Keith kicks in on Midnight Rambler, it's like you can you can feel the like tubes on his amp. Like you can see the tubes. It's so bright and warm and and just like heavy. It's Yeah, I think what you just described where you can hear the space and, and the tones are all so good. That to me is why this is probably my favorite Rolling Stones album is like next you're going to get you're going to get a live album and then you get Sticky Fingers. And I still I, that's another one that I hold really close, but you're starting. There's a little more. Some of that space is gone. Some of that sort of raw feeling is gone it kind of tightens up a little bit and then exile on main street's a little more just kind of bonkers in its own way but this this just feels like such a captured moment by the rolling stones yeah and i I feel like one i want to give a shout out something we haven't really talked about is that uh mick mixed harmonica playing is awesome on this record i know i'm using the word awesome a lot but i don't know how else to describe it and i don't think he's typically thought of as a really good harmonica player but that is him playing harmonica on those and i especially like Midnight Rambler, that is so key to that song and like keeping that song interesting for its full length. It's almost like, it's almost like keeping a little bit of a beat at a certain point in that song. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the little chugging train thing. It's also, it's also, uh, this is our first like pure um, Keith Richards vocal track, right? You Got the Silver is our first Keith Richards. So I was actually thinking a lot this week about Keith singing. Um, and you know, he, he's had a couple songs in the past few albums, salt of the earth and, um, something happened to me. He's like singing with Mick on those. And I think for, I think I was building myself up to make a case of like, this is worse than Ringo. Like, can you believe they let Keith sing these songs? And actually, I actually really like Keith's voice. I really enjoy it. I think it's really, really good. And I think, I mean, you could always say, hey, you got Mick Jagger. I think you did say on a previous one, like, why are you having Brian Jones sing these songs? You got Mick Jagger. Or no, someone else. It was Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. Wyman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Keith Richards' voice is great. It's just not, it's not the like full bright colors and madness of Mick Jagger, but I I really like it. It's kind of so weird. It's, It's very weird. Ringo is a sort of palate cleanser in all these Beatles albums and they throw him one or two songs, but his voice is so staid and it's kind of, you know, very basic. Whereas like Keith is a little, his is a little bit more wild and out there. And I think that's why my first inclination to be like, Oh, what is this? Why are you doing this? And then the more you listen to it, I just found myself like getting those songs and getting this voice stuck in my head. Tell me, honey, what will I do? When I'm hungry, too. How does this go down at Altamont? Okay, so I feel like the part of the story of Altamont is that um, the previous summer was Woodstock, 1968. And that was obviously a rousing success, although... Go go watch like those Woodstock documentaries. Um, it does not look that great to me. <laughs> it <laughs> is just a massive mud pit, literally just like, you know, it was a giant grass field that immediately just turned into a slip and slide of mud and like human feces. And then also the the bands 
they all sound like shit. Like the, the music equipment that they are projecting. I mean, maybe if you're in the first, you know, half a mile or whatever to the stage, um, it doesn't sound that great, but um, some of the organizers, it, it was actually some of the same people who had, had done Woodstock were like, yeah, we're going to do Woodstock West coast. This is going to be the West coast Woodstock. It's going to be in summer of 1969. And um, we're going to have the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are on board to do this. And it was basically Woodstock was one of those things where it was a huge clusterfuck and it all ended up coming together in the end. And even though there was things like not enough water for people or it was super muddy and dirty, everyone, it, it was like, it all worked out and everyone was cool. Yeah. Whereas and even, the, even independent of all the like specific things like the sound and the mud and everything like that, it's of a moment that you just associate with positivity and free love. Right. Yeah. And, and some, there, there's something that something happening here uh, and, and, and maybe you couldn't, what it is, isn't quite clear, but for people were just willing to put up with that stuff and, and, it, and it worked. Um, and then basically they, they went through a bunch of different venues to try to find, uh, I think it was actually the, um, the Grateful Dead who were the driving force behind trying to, to get the sort of Woodstock West coast festival set up. And a, a, again, similar to Woodstock, a bunch of places fell through Woodstock where it ended up happening on Yasker's farm. And that was like the third option or fourth option of where they were trying to do it. Similar sort of thing. And at the last minute, there was like, okay, we're going to do this at the Altamont Speedway, which is a big racetrack where they have NASCAR or whatever. And, um, and for whatever reason, the organizers of this decided for security, they were going to hire the Hells Angels, which Anyone who is interested uh, in Hell's Angels or what they're about, go read Hunter S. Thompson's book, Hell's Angels. It is a masterpiece. It is fascinating, horrifying look into this subgroup of people. But needless to say, they, they are not good people. <laughs> and I don't think you can blame it totally just on the Hell's Angels, like not just, oh, if they had just like hired a private security firm or something like that, this all would have, I, I, I still feel like no matter what, this was going to end badly. But um, long story short is that the people get kind of crazy um, at, at the concert, starting throughout the whole day, not just when the Rolling Stones come on and the Hell's Angels react really poorly and they react with overt violence, both to people in the crowd and people on stage and i don't know why but there's there's some audio that I'll, I'll slice in right now of the bands who just sound so totally impotent in the face of these rogue outlaws that they have hired to protect them hey man you guys do not have to stay on the stage man they're not gonna hassle us really hey they're not really that you know that's really not worth it and they they have no words they have no ability to like control them whatsoever and so when jefferson airplane is on stage and in the in the recordings of this you can hear the cracks they're they're using pool cues to like push people back in the audience and you can hear the smacks of these pool cues on people's like bones um as like the the, <laughs> the bands are like just cool out man just like everybody be chill <laughs> And, and like, thanks, thanks a lot for cracking our lead singer in the head. Like just, which are, the Rolling Stones are very similar. They go on last and people are rushing the stage, rushing the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels are beating the hell out of people. 
And Mick has nothing in his arsenal other than to be like, if you guys don't stop it, we're going to quit playing. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, come on now, that means everybody just cool out. We're just trying to keep it together, I can't do any more than just ask you, to beg you just to keep it together. You can do it, it's within your power, everyone, everyone, hell's angels, everybody. You know, if we if we are all one, let's fucking well show we're all one. We're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. You kids are not going to get any music if you don't be cool. And <laughs> it goes back to what we were talking about last month, which is like, these are some street fighting men, Justin. These yeah. are real tough <laughs> street fighting guys when they are encountering, re- I mean, real street fighting dudes, dudes who fight in the street literally every day. They are just completely impotent. They're not, yeah, they're not stepping into that to start scrapping. A, a person comes out of the crowd towards the Hell's Angels. He has a gun and I think he just gets stabbed. I don't think anyone actually fires a bullet, but the guy did have a gun. The Hell's Angel stabs him. He died. Um, and that was the end of the show. And that was the end of the 60s. Damn. So and ever since then, there's been lots of bloviating, especially throughout the whole 70s from authors in places like Rolling Stone and Cream about Ultima and what a horror it was and how it like was the end of the end. Yeah, and so it's the end of the 60s for us too. Oh my gosh, 1970 coming up. I know, and what's kind of cool about that is, as, as you say it, like it's the end of the 60s, but like you said, uh, the Beatles' Let It Be was recorded in the 60s prior to even Abbey Road. So you get a nice little relic of the 60s to come out in 1970 and a whole boatload of uh, uh, solo albums. Yeah, we're about to be inundated with music. Yeah, so next next year is Let It Be, heard that a ton. McCartney, heard that. All Things Must Pass, I've heard that. <laughs> uh, Plastic Odo Band, I've heard that. But then the two Ringo has two albums, Sentimental Journey and- Ringo has know, two but, albums. Yeah. <laughs> Both I'm not going to listen to both of those. <laughs> there, there's going to be, and then the Rolling Stones just have Get Your Yaya's Out live album. Um, that's a way, that's going to be a funny year. Um, I'll be representing the Beatles. I think that might've been the first one I drafted. Just to, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to come up with some creative arguments. Well, do we decide who won 1969? It's a tough choice. But I, if, if I'm taking one of these albums, um, I'm taking Let It Bleed. But I, I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to agree with, I'm going to agree with you. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard choice, but I, I don't know. This is officially their first win then on the pod. Dang. Cause I think we chose white album. Last year's banquet. Just in spite of, in spite of itself. So I, I believe 1969 is the first year for the Rolling Stones. Congratulations, boys. It's about to be their world from here on out, I think, though, except for maybe next year when they just have a live album. I'm not sure. Well, we'll see. We'll let the podcast play it out. We will see. Thank Thanks for you. listening. Email us at Beatles Stones pod at gmail.com.
do it. And also thank you to AKG for giving us a microphone to record my end of this podcast. My kids were going nuts in the background of this. And so I used the mute button a lot. <laughs> uh,